We're in a series in the book of Matthew, so if you're new today, I will catch up to speed uh, here just for a few minutes. We're in chapter 20, though, so there's a lot to say that I can't catch you up to speed on other than to say the gospel accounts of the New Testament, uh, you can consider them a genre because they are, but a type of genre of the Bible that is the climax of the whole narrative. It is uh, not just attempting but claiming to be uh, the climax of the story where God especially comes into the world to fulfill the Old Testament and all the promises of God. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians 1 or 2, I believe, that talks about how Christ, in Christ, all the promises of God, so all the promises of blessing and salvation for people to Israel, but also ultimately to the nations, find their yes in Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And not just that he exists or was born into the world, uh, the Son of God becoming a human being, but he did that in order to advocate for us as a, as a perfect man, a human being, but for sinners, to advocate for sinners. And he could do that because he was human. So the fact that God became a human being says everything to us about the gospel. It's a bit cryptic. If you don't know what happened on the cross, the fact that God became a man can be sort of strange, and we don't know exactly where the trajectory of that is, but we know because we have the whole book, and we're on this side of the cross, that he became what he wanted to die for. He became a human being to die as a human being for human beings. He did not become an angel or a rock or an animal to die for angels, rocks, or animals. He became a human being to die as one of us uh, to save and to advocate. So he's a substitute. That's basically what's going on in the whole of scriptures. The whole of the Bible, in many and various ways, tells that story. And the beginning parts of the gospel accounts uh, really start to heighten it. And in context here, remember that Jesus, everything he's saying and doing is somehow catered over to that. It's given over to it. It's to set the stage for it. But remember in context that Jesus here in chapter 20 had just entered the Judean region. So for most of his life, he's in Galilee, this northern Roman province. But he goes south along the Jordan, enters the Judean region on his way to Jerusalem. And the reason he's going there is to die. He's already made this very clear with his disciples. He's not just randomly going to Jerusalem to sightsee. He's going there because he knows there he will be ultimately rejected. He will ultimately die on a cross. And through that, he will atone for the sins of the world. And so on his way, though, he's been teaching people about the kingdom. He's been speaking in parables. He's been healing people miraculously. He's butting heads with good religious people. Remember, those are some of the main antagonists of the book, not really bad people. They love Jesus because they know they need him. It's really good people or who think they're pretty good are the ones who butt heads with Christ and who actually at this point in the narrative want to kill him. So they're setting out to kill him, Jewish spiritual religious leaders in particular, but also others. But he's doing that. He's demonstrating grace and forgiveness and otherwise just, again, setting the stage for the greatest act of salvation ever wrought in history. Namely, God dying in the place of sinners. God dying for us, absorbing our debt, absorbing our sin, absorbing our wickedness to make us clean and to declare us innocent forever through belief. So today what he's going to do, we're not quite there yet. We're, again, continuing to set the stage for this. But today, he's in Judea. He's going to teach more about the nature of God's kingdom. One way to understand what God is doing in the world, another way to phrase all that I just said, is to say that that's the kingdom of God, or God setting up his own reign in a world that's fallen away from him. Himself as king and his people who trust in him as the beneficiaries of that kingdom. And as good kings always have done throughout history, especially in biblical history, fight for the people set up peace and order within the walls of the kingdom and provide for them, and many other good things as well. That's what Christ is, is here to do. But along the way here, he's, he's going to do that on the cross and through the resurrection, but he's teaching about the nature of it through, through teaching, through parables. And today he's going to bring up another parable. A lot of Christ's parables are actually back in chapter 13, but there's a few more. 
before the book is over, and today is one of those. But we have to understand that what, what he's going to say today um, hangs on what he's just said to his disciples right before this. This is two weeks ago, so if you weren't here, let me remind you that Jesus just got done talking to a rich young man, inviting him to leave money, leave his money behind, stop worshiping the God of money, and to come and follow him and cling to him for eternal life. As the story goes, the man leaves sad because he loves his money too much. He worships too much the God of money and is not ready to call Christ God and follow him. So he leaves sad. But then the disciples look at this and say, well, we have left everything to follow you. So what's in store for us? In light of that, Jesus promises them reward for their belief and for fleeing idols and their, their past and for following him and clinging to his, they don't know this yet in these specific of terms, but ultimately clinging to his blood to wash them of their sins. But here's the key. But as we'll see today, that's the backdrop. There's a lot more to say about that. But in general, as we'll see today, this does not mean that these disciples are favored over others who will later believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and follow him too, or that their reward will be greater. So in a nutshell, again, Jesus is promising reward for belief and for following Christ, that reward ultimately being himself and eternal life. But as we'll see today, this does not mean that they are favored, even though they're they're specially following Jesus. These are the first 12 men who followed Christ and will later become apostles on whom the church is built, as the scriptures say, their teachings, biblical teachings. It does not mean, however, that they are favored over people like us who live 2,000 years later. Anybody throughout history who later believed, even later in their life, and hardly did any work for Jesus uh, in their life or served the church or the greater cause of the kingdom of God evangelistically at all, in their life. So we're going to see that today uh, play out. So one sense, reward for the disciples. Another sense, level playing field and equal pay or reward for all who believe, no matter at what point in their life or what point of biblical history. So on that foundation and with that backdrop, backdrop, let's read uh, Matthew 21 to 16. Jesus' words. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received the denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. All right, so remember what the four is there for in verse 1. He's grounding this again against the backdrop of Jesus promising reward for the disciples. But 
leveling the playing field as well, right, with this parable. This is crucial to understand when we're confronted with what exactly the gospel of Jesus Christ is. This is what he's saying, right? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or synonymous with salvation, this is what it's like. And he tells a story. He tells them a parable to demonstrate it. And he does this elsewhere too with his actions, but here he's demonstrating this metaphorically with a story. So to illustrate this idea, what kind of story does he tell? It's a really fascinating story. And I think that when we really come to grips with this, and I'm guessing for a lot of you this is going to be brand new. You'll hear something today about God that you just did not know was true. Others of you, uh, and all of us to a degree, uh, let me just say this to you to begin. The gospel, a true gospel, is always offensive. If you ever hear someone talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, holistically anyway, there's many ways to talk about it, but holistically, and there's no offense to it, it's not a true gospel. Now, the Bible calls the gospel, or Jesus Christ himself, the rock of offense. He is offensive. He's incredibly beautiful and welcoming and inclusive and salvific and merciful and generous. There's also this rock of offense to it as well that we're seeing play out here metaphorically in story form in Matthew 20, but said elsewhere clearly as well, in that God saves alone, and we don't. That's a very humbling, pride-killing thing uh, to, to hear. So, so what kind of story does he tell you? What is the kingdom of God like? What is God like? What is salvation like? He tells the story of a master of a vineyard who goes out and hires servants to work in that vineyard and agrees with them on a denarius a day. A denarius was a common wage for one day for labor in the first century. Then he goes out, hires more people later in the day at various intervals, agreeing to pay them, quote, what is right. He does this several times again, culminating at the 11th hour, which for the Jews was around 5 p.m., so the end of the workday. He's still going out and finding workers, laborers for this vineyard, bringing them in and having them work probably for about 30 minutes before the end of the day. So some work for eight to nine plus hours in the scorching sun. Others work in the cool of the day just for a half an hour, not exerting themselves too much, uh, but at the end of the day. And then they're called and the foreman, uh, the master calls them together and the foreman pays. But when the master calls them in to get paid, here's the key. They are paid in this manner. This is how they're paid. The last ones, the ones who are hired last at the 11th hour and who worked the least get paid first. And they get a denarius, which is what the master agreed to terms with the first laborers on. Then the ones who worked more, who sweat more, who bled more in the scorching heat for the day, thinking they get paid more than the denarius after all, when they arrive, they are given the exact same pay, a denarius, as the ones that that worked in the 11th hour. So shocked, surprised, they grumble about it with the master because the master had, quote, made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Master closes with a few words, but one of which is saying, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you resent my generosity? That's one of the key questions today that I'll bring up a little bit later. And wherever you guys are spiritually, great questions. We're confronted with the gospel, confronted with the grace of God, confronted with his choice and his power and how small we are and insignificant before the cross, but still deeply loved. As we're confronted with these truths, there's this question that kind of hangs off of all of that of, Do I resent this perceived unfairness? Do I resent or begrudge the grace of God? So then the question becomes, what what is this parable intended to teach us, right? What what do we learn about the kingdom through it? Again, verse 1 is key. Jesus says salvation is like this. God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. So the parable then is a picture 
in a nutshell, of God saving people through His Son, Jesus Christ, then rewarding them at the end of their workday or life. So it's a picture of really the whole of the rest of biblical history from the cross all the way to the end when God will return and judge the living and the dead and there will be a reward of himself and eternal life given to those who have been called to his vineyard uh, to work, who have become the church effectively. So when we view it through that lens, it tells us a number of things, but the overarching thing is just the, the great old gospel we talk about every week. And that is, salvation is not about work. It's not about what these guys do. It's not about their amount of work, right? It's about God's generosity. The key factor in these guys' salvation, or at the end of the day, what really matters is the fact that they were with the master in the vineyard. And as Jesus is careful to qualify what the master says at the end in talking about God's choice and God's ownership of those people and God's grace and his generosity, especially with the question, do you begrudge my generosity? That becomes the focal point. Salvation is about God. Salvation is about God's generosity, not about us, not about what we do for him or think we do for him, which we cannot give to him that we should be repaid, as the scriptures say. So again, this is the gospel we talk about every week, but I want you guys to especially grasp it today through the lens of this story, which I'm guessing for many of you, maybe it's the first time you've understood the gospel through the lens of Matthew 21 to 16, or if you've read this just yesterday, freshly enjoy this again and understand what we learn about salvation through it. And just be honest with yourself here. Right off the bat, be honest with your, with your heart and your mind. When you heard this story, did any part of your mind or heart say, that's not fair? Did any part of your heart or mind, any just whisper in your soul say, that's not fair? when the laborers were paid? This is, in fact, a wonderful spiritual litmus test of sorts for us to go through regularly to ensure that we're thinking like an actual biblical Christian, like a gospel person, and not like a fake religious Christian. So in the name of Christ, operating somehow underneath a system of beliefs, but in a false manner. This is, this is how we, with these types of questions and parables and teachings, we can actually figure out are we actually thinking like a gospel man or a gospel woman, an actual biblical Christian? So in other words, if our first thought to this parable is, that's not fair, and we have some resentfulness towards the teaching or even to God because of it, then it's a sign that we have forgotten the grace of God and we do not understand the core tenets of Christianity. And as Christians, too, we can still have these subtle pulls towards that. It doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. We're instantly not a Christian. I mean to say that. It just means that we don't understand well yet enough or perfectly. We're saved through a small mustard seed of faith, but we're still not fully grasping in the manner that Matthew 21 to 16 paints out for us the gospel of grace. So it's a sign that we've forgotten the grace of God and we think much too highly of ourselves. But if we think this is right for God to do, then we're thinking highly of God's grace and very lowly of ourselves. In other words, properly. And here's one of the first uh, maxims I want to give you guys today, and I've got a couple of these that um, I don't think I have this on screen neatly painted out, so I'll try to remember to say this along the way. But this first one that's really important to understand through the lens of Matthew 20 is God is not about fairness. We clearly see that here, right, in Matthew 20. And a lot of people like to make fairness or want fairness to be God's main attribute. Uh, more than love, more than mercy, more than all other kinds of attributes that we might read about more in the scriptures. But we just, maybe in our heart of hearts, want God to be 
a very fair God ultimately. This does not mean that God is not fair in some ways. It depends on how we define that word. God in some ways is, is very, treats us very equally. He's very inclusive. And it depends on how we define that word. It's not, it shouldn't be a taboo thing, in other words, for us to talk about. It just means it's not the ultimate thing. God's not ultimately about fairness. He's ultimately about other things, especially love, which I'll come back to in, in a minute. But there's a lot of ways to unpack uh, this statement of God not being about fairness, but rather about love and generosity. And a couple of them, though, just to help you guys get one of these falls aside the scope of the sermon a little bit here, but it helps you understand apologetically or in a reason-based sense with the scriptures what we're really saying when we say, I want God to be fair. The one is, think about it this way. If God was really ultimately fair, and again, many would want to believe that his fairness is God's ultimate attribute, but if it's really fair, no one would be saved. Right? If, we, if God was ultimately fair, no one would be saved because to treat us fairly would be to treat us as our sins deserve. But as Psalm 103.10 says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Right? Praise God! That's the case. Through Christ, he does not treat us in a way that we deserve, in a way our sins deserve. So in that sense, there's this degree of unfairness to it, right? But if he was fair, there'd be absolutely no one saved. And so be careful what you wish for. <laughs> be careful what you want when you say, I want God to be fair, because you're basically saying, I want hell and separation from him forever when you want God's fairness. Think very lowly of yourself and very highly of God's grace and how much his love supersedes the fairness idea to the point of being gloriously, lovingly unfair in how he treats lost sinners. So his unfairness then, mixed with his love for lost people, again, is ultimately going to be, this is how Matthew 20 starts to look ahead to the cross, is exemplified on the cross where he dies for sinful, undeserving humanity. Or think about it like this. Is it fair that the Son of God, who's perfect, die in a cursed manner on a cross, a bloody cross, among criminals? Is that fair? Not at all, right? So praise God that Jesus pursued the unfairness of the cross, lovingly, willingly, wanting to do this for the glory of his name and God the Father, but to save lost people like us. So God has to, if, if, we, if he's going to bring a kingdom into the world that benefits us, he has to operate on this type of Matthew 20 unfair uh, level. But again, in another related sense, then we've simply seen his unfairness play out by bringing last people, people who believe last, in first, and paying all of his people, rewarding them all the same at, at the very end. And that leads me then to the second maxim here, which is, is God chooses and loves. This is his main attribute. So his main attribute is not fairness. His main attribute biblically is being a God who lovingly chooses and, pers- like Peter said earlier before that last song, pursues people in the darkness. He, he goes out and chases us down lovingly. It's one of the best pictures of love you can get anywhere. If a human being does this for another human being, it's an act of love. When God does this for sinful rebels like us, how much more is it an act of love? Because he love at the core of God being a, a people chaser, a sinner chaser. Uh, as we looked at back in Matthew 18, a shepherd who chases down lost sheep and finds them and brings them back. Not a God who waits in the fold for the sheep to find their way back to him. God is not like that. He's found you. He's found me. He loves you. He loves me. He loves his people. And he's constantly doing this around the world today through his Holy Spirit, through the church, finding people in the darkness and shining light in their face and saying, rise, get up, follow me, be clean, 
Trust in me for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the reward of eternal life at the end of, of your days. So that's his ultimate attribute. If you were to, if you were to rank them, I don't want to make too much out of a ranking here, but just to say that God clearly through Matthew 20 favors love more than complete fairness in every sense of the word anyway. So the parable here then is clearly more about God doing this finding than it is about how long they work, right? If you're to just step back and get the big picture here, what's the main thing going on according to the very end is it's not really about how much they work because God doesn't really care. He gives them all the same reward. What's really the point is that God goes and finds people and brings them into his vineyard. That's amazing grace because these, these, these vineyard or these uh, laborers aren't finding the vineyard, knocking on the door and saying, I can work for you and make you a lot of money if you just let me. God's actually like a good master going out to find the workers, find the servants. It's the same with Christianity, the same with the Bible. This is what God is like for us. He's effectively done this for you. If you're a Christian today, for you and me, and if you're not, he's doing this right now. He's chasing you down and saying, come be in my vineyard. Come be in my fold. Come be in my kingdom. Come be in my house. Come be in the new world with me. I'm fixing the sin that, that you had in you when you rebelled against me. That you're born into. I'm fixing that problem by bearing it in your place, by being the sacrifice of atonement. Come back and be close to me. But again, that's the point. And, and what really gives this special nuance to this is how he ends when he says, therefore, the last will be first. Because of all that I've just said here in Matthew 20, the last will be first and the first will be last. One of the more repetitive things that Jesus says, actually, in these latter parts of Matthew, and it comes up elsewhere in the New Testament. So we should put our finger on that and say, this is important. It's really important for God to bring in the last first and to make the first life. Though he loves all equally and all receive the equal reward, it's very important, the order here. So if we really think about that, I want you guys to feel the sting of this for a minute. So I'm going to try to recap this in modern-day terms, or at least in the, the, the trajectory of what it's trying to say here. If this is true... If the last are first, if all are paid equally, if this is really about a picture of God saving people all throughout their life up to the end when judgment occurs, then this means that the worst of sinners who are barely saved at the end of their life will enter the kingdom of God ahead of Christians who have been Christians their entire lives and worked for the kingdom tirelessly, even giving their lives for it. All equally loved, all equally rewarded with eternal life, right, through Christ. But those last ones who are Christians for five minutes on their deathbed, who realize the error of their ways and who repent and say, God, I need your blood to wash me of my sins. I can't do it. And no other gods of history or my life or the world, they're all fake. And I cling to you instead. Save me. And we beg for, beg for justification and purity and the removal of that rebellious heart, a new heart, for five minutes. They're the ones that go in first. Isn't that amazing? Incredibly beautiful and freeing, right? And incredibly offensive at the same time. Blend that up in the blender and drink the shake of that. That's like Christianity, right there. Or let me heighten it a little bit for you here and just get more specific with this. When we think about the worst of sinners, and I've said this before and I'll just I'll qualify this because it's important. When we think about the worst of sinners, like the Bible says, look in a mirror. Like G.K. Chesterton says um, when asked uh, famously, what's the biggest problem in the world? He says, I am. And I love that. That's a Christian thinking there. <laughs> you know, I'm the biggest problem in the world. So we should have that in our mind. But aside from that, putting that aside for one second, you know, when we think about the last entering first, I mean, think about what you think about 
they brought the worst of sinners, the greatest physical offense anyway, or obviousness, uh, to being a sinner. When I, when I think that, I think about it in these terms playing out. A repentant pedophile, a repentant terrorist, a repentant serial killer, at the end of his life, realizing the error of his ways, realizing I, I deserve an eternal hell and worse, I believe Jesus did live, I believe he actually died for my sins, and they reach out and they beg for forgiveness to the cross. Being a Christian on his deathbed for five minutes, that type of person, according to Matthew 21 to 16, will lead the line into heaven. They will lead the line. And they will be ahead of seasoned pastors, seasoned missionaries, and seasoned martyrs who, loved equally by God, will, and spending all of their life really working 50, 60, 70 years, will bring up the rear. What? This is Christianity. This is awesome. Incredibly offensive, right? But just it's a good burn. We want that. This is telling us, this is telling us what we need to understand about ourselves and about God. To the point where if we don't under if we don't feel this, we don't get this, we are not thinking distinctly Christian. We're thinking religiously, underneath the veil of Jesus he talk, maybe, but we're not thinking distinctly Christian thoughts. But this is the reality. So the question here is: do we resent that? Do we resent God's generosity playing out in this manner? Do we think, well, that's simply not fair? I hear what you're saying, Chris, but I just, that's just not fair. There's no justice in that. Or you think, I deserve more, or he deserves less. What are those three questions saying about, if we have those, or when we have those, we all do to a degree, when we have those questions, what is it saying about our misguided view of salvation? I deserve more, he deserves less, it's not fair. What's that saying? It's saying that we believe we're saved by works, not by God's grace. You might not think that or make that connection, connect those dots that as neatly, but that's really that's beneath the covers. If you just peel back the top cover, that's that the beating heart of that bad theology is just right there, and uh, and that's what's that's what's beneath it. So God then really, in one sense, has to do this. I mean, if God if God said the first will be first and the last will be last, and if God distributes unequal pay based on the amount of your work that you do for God in your life, what's that saying? It's saying we're saved by works, right? Not by what we do. God is because he's so bent on grace, so bent on grace over and against works of the law and what we do to earn favor with him that he has to pound home this repeated idea of the last being first and the first being last. It is, you could say, inextricable with his greater teachings on saved by grace, God's grace through the cross, not by our moral deeds. Romans 9, 14 to 16, a similar topic. I want to mention this because it's almost like Paul is anticipating this in the Roman church and posing the question and answering it. A slightly different angle on it, but close enough where we can link it. So Romans 9, 14 to 16, I'll jump in the middle of his argument to say that. The question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice for the way God's doing this? Should we say that? How he's paying people at the end? By no means. For he says to Moses in the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here's the key. Here's the so then. What does this mean? So then, it, salvation, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is what this means. Because God is the one that expresses mercy on his watch, on his terms. This is what this means. And this is what Romans 20, 1 to 16 means. If this is all true, it cannot depend on human will 
how much you try. It cannot depend on my exertion or your exertion spiritually before God. It has to depend on God who shows mercy freely to all who believe, lovingly. He's like the master in the vineyard who's giving his 11th hour workers the same pay as the ones ahead. This screams, I save, you don't. I save, you don't. Rest in that and be free. This is what the the Spirit of God wants to encourage, and I'll get specific here, wants to encourage all of us in this room specific. You're here because of this. You're drawn here because I'm here because of this. We need to know this gospel and be free and to make sure we're entering the vineyard, first of all, but entering on the right terms, his terms, not ours, and that we do not resent his generosity in a legalistic, moralistic, it's all about me kind of way. So this is what all this is shouting at us. It's a gospel shout over and over and over again in the scriptures. And Matthew 21 to 16 just plays, plays a part, small part, but a significant one in Matthew nonetheless. And this is yet another, too, great example of a parable that you will never see in another religion. Never, never see it, right? Not even close. In fact, the opposite you'll see in every other holy book ever written, every other worldview and philosophy that weaves God and some kind of eternal life or what we're supposed to do to get there type of philosophy into it. It's the opposite. All other religions would basically rewrite the parable as the workers would get paid differently, right? You, you get paid based on how much you work for God. And, and if those scales tip in your favor, you get paid a little bit more. If they're kind of in the middle, you'll squeak in. If they don't, you won't get in. But the Bible's emphasis here is on a God who goes out to find idle spiritual people. The point is that they're in the vineyard. Not that they're working a certain amount of time, but that God's going to find. In fact, other religions probably would say too, in some fashion, well they do, some fashion, that God remains in the vineyard and waits for people to go knock on his door to work. But you don't see that type of master here. The master goes out to find the workers and he gives them all equal pay. To scream at us again, it's not based on what you do, it's based on what God does that brings us into into the vineyard. All through his son, Jesus Christ, who dies for our sins. God identifies, God calls, God saves, God shows mercy, God shows compassion, God purchases us and makes us his own. As he says here in Matthew 20, I have the right to do what I want with those that belong to me. You belong to God. You're loved. You are owned by him. He's purchased you with his blood. You belong to him now like an adopted son or daughter in his vineyard, in his kingdom. That's amazingly good news. And it's all based on what he's done for you, not on you. And this, again, this is, this is completely unique to Christianity. No other religions have ever said this or ever will. It's all about a ladder. It's all about you and me finding God and working for him. But Matthew 20 screams the opposite of this, right? Screams the opposite. God saves you, you don't. And I don't. It's also a good example of why many people resent Christianity. All of us do until we become Christians, right? (laughs) To a degree. Um, I used to. Uh, But why there's this resenting idea of the God of the Bible, and and to a degree, in various ways, of course, here, but I'm just saying broadly. Because what Christianity says is that our work before God is not the answer and we're not good enough. It's an offensive thing to hear makes God bigger and us smaller. It cuts at the pride. I should say, too, that uh, this does not mean that our work 
There's a plethora of passages I could quote today, but let me just say this broadly as a qualification because it's fallen outside the scope of the sermon a bit. But it does not mean that our work in God's kingdom is insignificant. It's not saying that, right? God's not declaring all of their work as pointless or insignificant here. Rather, think about it this way. Like a father who sees his son's work as significant but not necessary to make him love him more. So is God's attitude toward you and me. Our relationship then to God is based on his love to us, not on our work for him. To spin this parable one more direction. Your, your salvation is based on God finding you. It's based on God chasing you down. It's based on God inviting you to his vineyard. It's based on Jesus dying on a cross for your sins and his love for you in that. It's not based on your work for him, though it still can have and does have tons of significance. In, uh, in our home, Aletha and I will say sometimes to our kids, because what do kids say other than it's not fair, right? I mean, that's basically all they say all the time. Uh, so, of course, adults kind of do too, but we just think it. Um, <clears throat> but kids say it all the time. It's not fair. That's not fair. It's not fair. And we'll, we'll just say to our kids quick that in this home, fairness is not the main thing. In this home, love is the main thing. And that doesn't mean it's wrong to pursue fairness for your kids. Obviously, parents are going to do that on a variety of levels. You know, Emma's going to get 10 presents and Jane gets one. Sorry, it's biblical. No, <laughs> not going to do that. But, um, it, but to say, still, I want our kids to know, because this is at the heart of God, it's the heart of Christianity, that God is not about fairness. It's a good thing. It's gospel for you to hear that. Uh, say this to our kids, to ourselves. A good example of how love is the ultimate thing here in this home and that will look unfair sometimes, but it shouldn't matter to you because you're loved. And we die for you, and we love you equally, and whatever else we say. <laughs> um, it's other things too. But anyway, so um, but here's what I want to start to end with here, and I'll, I'll start to drive this home. There's really one of two ways that will eventually go with this type of teaching, this gospel, but with a specific Matthew 20 bent to it. We'll either be greatly encouraged by it, or will greatly resent it. There's really only two ways you can go. And that doesn't mean you can't be in the middle for a time trying to figure this out, and this might be the first time you're hearing this and confused, and how does that all work? Uh, it's fine. You can obviously be there as well. But I'm, what I'm saying is you can't not end in one of those two camps. You're either greatly freed and encouraged by this teaching, or you will resent the teaching. You'll resent the Christian teacher who gave it to you, or you'll resent God himself. And you'll ultimately, if the slope is slippery enough, and it's pretty slippery, uh, you'll leave the faith because your gospel will be more about you than it is about God and what he's done. That's the ultimate slippery slope end to resenting God's generosity. I can't resent his generosity and receive it, obviously, at the same time. So, so when we're confronted with this then, and this is a chance, wherever you guys are, we're here, right? And, and this is, we can go one of two ways with this today. We're confronted with God's radical generosity shown to us on the cross and and even related concepts here of God choosing people. I hinted at this earlier. It's kind of a cousin of what we're seeing here in Matthew 20 about completely being saved by grace. But you're also seeing a hint here of a vineyard master going out to find workers and you know, supposedly not others. He's going out to show mercy from Romans 9, who he wants to show mercy to and compassion, who he wants to show compassion to. Does not mean we don't have real choices. We obviously are called to respond to choose Christ or not. We obviously have real choices, but the scriptures do teach that behind our response to the gospel is a God who goes out and finds us and calls particularly 
softens our hearts and shows us mercy as Romans 9 was, was getting at. But again, on both levels, we can either resent God's perceived unfairness, maybe choosing some but not others or, or paying all um, equally at the end, or we can be encouraged by it. And it's always the latter that's encouraged. Whenever you're confronted with these grandiose statements of God being in control of all things, including our salvation, uh, in the spirit of the way it is here, or Romans 9, or whatever it is, the point is always, 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 always to encourage the church. The point is to worship. Not to understand this perfectly, philosophically. It's not wrong to wonder, ask questions about it, even remain confused, but resenting God for it is sin, and it needs to be turned from. Resenting the Bible for it and trying to defend God and change the way, if I was God, this is how I would work, thinking that way is sin and needs to be turned from. It's a gentle encouragement to come and believe in the God of Matthew 20, 1 to 16, and see the gospel in it, and worship. Darren Patrick, a pastor down in St. Louis, says this is broadly about God's sovereignty. The proper response to God's sovereignty is not to demand explanations from God, and I would add to defend God away from that, but rather to render praise to God. Proper response to God's sovereignty over all things, including our salvation, is not to demand explanations. How does that work? What does that mean about so-and-so? But to render praise to God. And this is how it relates to the gospel. There's a big if-then here. It's never, Paul's not raising this issue or these kinds of issues to just, oh, I'm going to confuse the Romans, you know, and kind of throw this issue out there. They can't figure it out. This is kind of giggle, you know, as he's writing. He's not doing that. He's always writing to get us to the cross, always. So th- this is no exception, this idea of God's control over all things and choosing and finding us and showing generosity equally. If God is doing all of this, here's the big if-then. If God chooses, if God shows mercy, if God pays the workers equally, if it's not about our work, if fairness is not God's ultimate attribute but love is, then how can we lose that salvation? That's the big then. Or why should we ever doubt if God completely gives and we completely receive? See how it strikes at our doubt even. And how loving does this make God out to be? I said this last week too about um, a different passage, different context, but how the point to God being a chaser-downer is that you will understand him more as more of a lover of your souls. God is not a God who sits in the vineyard and waits for you to find him and knock on his door saying, I can work for you. God is not like that. He makes it clear. Rather, he's like the God who goes out to find you in love. The shepherd who finds the lost sheep. And he's done that for you if you believe. And if you don't believe, he's doing that for you right now by explaining the gospel to you. He's here by his spirit. He loves you. Don't rob God of love and yourself of joy by cheapening or making smaller God being a chaser downer. He is that. That's what he is. And when you see that more, you'll understand him more. When it says God is love, the Bible really means it. He loves you. He's this type of God, this type of I. I I point these people to eternal life and I love them. I'm going to soften their hearts and go out and save them and bring them into my church and into my fold and my vineyard. This is what God is like, not the God who's standing back waiting for people uh, to maybe, if they're lucky, find them and uh, you know, flip a coin or roll dice to kind of gamble with himself on who's going to find them. He knows you. He knows you and he loves you. And he's chosen you and he's shown mercy to you. Two things then in conclusion, and uh, I mentioned first service. I ran out of time this morning, so I don't have this on the slide. (laughs) So bear with me. 
uh, first thing is, uh, let the scriptures and experience as well point you to the gospel of love and unfairness. There's a gospel truth to unfairness and, and to God's love being wrapped up in that principle, defining it properly, of course. Let the scripture and experience do it. And one of the reasons I love this principle is that, you know, we see this play out in the Bible, like we talked about today, but also in experience. God has set up a world around us to point us to gospel truth and biblical truth as well. It's not randomly happening. Everything, we kind of sang about that earlier, everything, all the flowers, the ground, the skies, the moon, somehow can testify to the grace of God, and experience and events can do that as well. But I thought this week, uh, thinking about playoffs, NFL playoffs, and NBA playoffs a lot, it's kind of like in sports, professional sports, when a player is traded for and added to the team at the end of a season, and you guys ever notice this or think about this? Then they play for that team in the playoffs and win the championship, and they get the ring too, you know? You ever wonder about that? Like, this guy didn't do anything. He's playing for a loser team throughout the season. Now he's traded for, comes onto this rock star team, and he doesn't get a half a ring. He doesn't get a certificate. He gets equal pay, right, with the rest of the people who, who sweat, who shed blood, who broke bones, who spent day, day one in training camp with that team. They get the equal pay. So we see this all around us. Or it's like a good father giving each of his children an equal inheritance after he dies, even though his oldest was around longer and did more work for him. But love reigns. I mean, any good father is going to do that, right? Because love's going to define the distribution of money, not, well, my oldest worked harder for me, so he gets, you know, 70%. Or if we just think life's not fair. Who hasn't thought that five times already this morning, right? Life's not fair. I mean, life's not fair is an opportunity for us to think this. We're not saved by what we do. Unfairness somehow happens, and that should demonstrate and teach us a spiritual lesson in that moment that we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by God's grace. That's ultimately what unfairness can teach us. It might be a grand injustice that God has promised to resolve and fix as well. And if you're not the only Christian response to injustice, no doubt, but... It can, teach, it can teach us in that moment that, oh, that's right. These things happen. The sports players happen that way. The good father with inheritance thing. And many more things happen. And the Bible teaches this as well to show us, scream to us, that God saves and it's not our work, not our goodness, not our morality that saves us. Only God who chooses to show mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. So, so we tend to not question these physical things as much, right? With the sports player, the inheritance thing. How much more should we not resent or question a God who has the right to be generous equally to those who are his, to express his love, and to constantly encourage his people that it's not about what you do, it's about me. So that last question then is, wherever you guys are spiritually today, or just with this concept, don't begrudge God's generosity. Don't resent it. Worship him for it. Don't go the route of resentfulness. Some of you are over here. You're, you're almost there, the place of resentfulness. Cross over. Jesus is inviting you over here to say, but do you see how much my generosity and the way that salvation plays out should scream how much I love you more than over here? How it's not about you. How you're like, and I am like, the worker in the 11th hour. I don't care how long you've been a Christian, you're the 11th hour worker, and so am I. Because there's always someone ahead of you who's older, who's worked harder, who's said more poetic things, who saved more people and evangelized more people, You're all, all of you and me are, are the 11th hour worker. Praise be to God 
that he rewards us with his love, rewards us with eternal life, the same way as those that go before us and who, in one sense of the word, are greater than us. Praise be to God. I mean, this is his generosity. This is his love. This is his humbling, offensive, but beautifully freeing gospel that crushes our pride and raises us up from the ground to be full of the Spirit again and to just love Jesus because of his love for us. Not based on what you do, not based on, not based on how great you are, based on his love alone. So enter his vineyard, enter his kingdom, respond to his extremely generous offer of eternal life, saying, I became like you to die as one of you. If you believe in me, I'll take your sin forever and ever and ever, the darkest corner of your heart. And I, I want to invite you guys to just pray that prayer right now. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 150 years or whatever, but uh, pr- pray it. Thank God for it. Uh, don't be passive with his generosity. Respond to it. Uh, don't begrudge. Think more about his amazingly gospel-centered, unfair love, the gloriously unfair love, uh, and your smallness before him. Let's pray. God, thank you for today, uh, your, the gospel of Matthew 21, 16, which is all about grace, all about the cross ahead of time, where you will ultimately uh, go to embody this parable, uh, being the, the vineyard master who goes out to find spiritually idle or dead people, raise them up and bring them close to you. It's what salvation is all about, being where you are, having you, having the reward of you and your presence in our life, because beforehand it's just simply not possible. So thank you for staying committed to your creation, coming into the world to save it when it all went to hell. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and for making it clear in the Bible that you choose to show mercy and you just don't wait for us to find you in the darkness. Praise be to God, you chase us down in the darkness and you save us. And with this parable, just make it clear, it's not about our work. It's about, salvation's about you being very, 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 very generous. So thank you for that ultimate gift of your son who, as the scriptures say, gave himself and his body on the cross and shed his blood that we might have life. Galatians 1. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.